Can we get started here? Like, let's... All right, let's get going. Today is Sunday, May 3rd, 2020, and you're listening to Simply Speaking. On today's episode, we sit down remotely with John Matus. John is an attorney in the state of Massachusetts, and we have a conversation with him about some of the legal aspects of the current shutdown slash lockdown, closure of businesses, and restriction of freedoms that we're seeing as a result of the COVID-19 virus. In addition, we learn a great deal about what it takes to be a savvy news connoisseur and how Matus was able to anticipate some of the occurrences as a result of this virus well before most of the media was reporting on what would happen. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and thank you for listening to Simply Speaking. Welcome to Simply Speaking. I'm Conrad. And I'm John. And with us today, we have a special, a very special guest. Uh, his name is Mr. John Matus, and I'm going to let him introduce him uh, and give a little background about himself. Hello, my name is John Matus. I'm an attorney licensed in Massachusetts and New York. I practice mostly appellate law, um, and I do a lot of criminal work on that side of it. So you can just say criminal defense work uh, and appeals. And if anyone wants more descriptions, you can go to my website, matuslaw.com, M-A-T-E-U-S-L-A-W.com. All right, guys, go ahead. So I think one of the reasons we wanted to bring uh, Matus on today, and by the way, I'm going to refer to him as Matus during this episode, since we have two Johns on the uh, show, it's going to be a little confusing otherwise. So Matus, you, I would say more than any of my other friends have been on top of this COVID-19 crisis since the very beginning. I think you were one of the people sounding the alarm way back in, I don't know, like January, maybe, or it was months, months before um, it got to where it is today for certain. How are you able to, or how were you able to kind of see the writing on the wall? Like what resources were you using? Where were you getting that information and making yeah. those deductions? Well, you, you know, I've, you know, you can't really trust the corporate media nowadays, you know, whether it's ostensibly right wing or left wing. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're dinosaurs and they're too owned by various large interests. I was going with, you, what you really have to do is look at individual reporters who you trust. People who just, whatever their political alignment, are reliable. There's a difference between bias and reliability. So I was looking at people like uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, his Twitter feed, he's a very far left winger. Um, people like Tim Poole, who's more of a centrist left winger. And then a guy named Mike Cernovich, who gets a lot of flack. Uh, but his, because, you know, they accuse him of being a conspiracy monger and just kind of a woo-woo type guy, but he's very, like, he's out of the box in his thinking, but when he's, you know, all three of those people, mostly Tim Poole and Mike Cernovich, were kind of sounding the alarm pretty early because they were looking at non-traditional uh, news sources or just foreign news sources that our American news sources don't look at that often because they're always, they were focused, hyper-focused on Trump and they were hyper-focused on America, American politics. And Cernovich really pointed out like 
that the he's you know he's not a he, he's not a panic guy he's not a guy who goes we need to panic about this so when he goes this is bad and he points out he pointed out back in january that the replication rate of the disease going on in china was ridiculously high um uh, you know he goes that's this is a bad thing this is something to worry about and he's like i you know this is something we need to keep an eye on and from there i started paying attention to things like there were a number of um, individuals who were post, who were non-Chinese nationals who were living in Wuhan, the city of Wuhan, and they were posting videos of themselves in Wuhan during the lockdown. And uh, there was an Irish guy, I forget what his name is right now, but he was posting his own videos and they got picked up by um, one of the British news services. And it was just like, it looked like a ghost town, like looked like a Wild West ghost town He'd walk the streets to go get his groceries and he was only allowed out in certain days and he's wearing like two masks and gloves and it looked, you know, it looked apocalyptic. And that was my first clue that this was scary. And then the second clue was, um, it, you know, because we're in a globalist society, we're also dealing with supply chains. And I've said, I think I texted you guys from the beginning when I first, because I, I was texting you guys about this, I'm like, the scariest part about thing, this thing might not be the disease, it might be the disruption to the supply chain because we depend on China and India for medications, many manufactured goods. And if those go awry, you know, that could cause a cascade of what we're seeing now, which is shortages in our shelves. Now, luckily, we haven't got to the point where people are rioting or fighting over things because we've been pretty good about keeping the supplies going. But that was the second thing. I was really worried about supply chain interruptions as a result of that. And that's when I started sounding the alarm, you know, posting things on Facebook, sending things to family members and just being like, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to have like a couple weeks, couple extra weeks worth of, you know, toilet paper or, you know, food or, you know, right now. And uh, that's kind of where I started. You know, non I just look for individual news sources who were reliable in the past and who aren't fear-mongers. These guys aren't Alex Jones. Trust me, Tim Pool is not Alex Jones. And even he, by mid-February, was going, all right, this could be serious. You know, this could be something that, you know, we should... He, he's actually, he's a, like I said, he's a center-left guy. He started selling emergency food back in, like, February. He's just like, I don't, I want you to buy this. <laughs> if it, not from me, from somebody. So anyway, that's a long way of saying uh, where I got my information from. So how did you find these sources initially? Like, what steps did you take? Because it's hard to find reliable, reputable sources. So I, I know you kind of touched upon this a little, but when you, one, how did you find these sources? And two, when you did, how did you vet them? Like, how did you know that they were reliable? Like, I understand you said that, uh, you know, you go for the reporter and not the news agency, but how did you specifically say, okay, I can trust this guy versus, okay, this person, maybe I can't trust as much. Yeah, that, that's, that's a difficult thing in, in the moment. It, it's what's long-term thing. It's like any, you know, it's, with any reporter, it's, it's like any relationship. You, you, you observe them, and if what they consistently say is trustworthy, then it becomes I can trust. Like Glenn Greenwald and Tim Pool and Cernovich, these were three guys who, regardless of their point in the political spectrum, they all agreed that the whole impeachment stuff on Trump from, from the beginning has been a giant farce and it's been a giant hoax. And, you know, for a guy like Glenn Greenwald, who's, like I said, very far left, and he actually works for The Intercept, which is a publication that is, was very pro-impeachment, for him to step out of line, even though he's 
you know, one of the founders of it. And so therefore he has more credibility, you know, more power there. For him to step up and say, look, anybody who's saying that this is, that there are valid allegations here, you know, you're just, you're either drunk on hatred or you're lying. And he's like, there's nothing here. I don't like Trump. I hate everything he does, but you're trying to delegitimize his presidency and you're trying to trump up charges that are just not there. And Tim Pool was the same way. Tim Pool was just like, I don't want to defend Donald Trump, but this is ridiculous. And Cernovich, he was kind of a pro-Trump booster at the beginning. He and all of them have pretty good scouts. Like Cernovich, he from what, he broke a story once that caused a U.S. congressman to resign. He broke a, a story about John. I think his name was John Waters, who was a U.S. congressman. How he used to just openly and blatantly harass uh, any woman who was in an elevator with him. And so, you know, he broke that story and got this congressman to resign. And he's broken other stories, like Susan Rice. He broke a story about her, like, releasing top-secret information. He's very good. So it's more like a long-term thing. It's like, you know, and I, I should say I work from home a lot. So, you know, I have time to kind of go look at these various news sources. But, you know, when I look at, like, the evening news or, like, cable news or the headlines in, like, major newspapers – it's like, you know, when you read enough of them all the way down, you realize how little the, how little the headline has to do with what the story actually, what, what you know, the facts on the ground. And it, it seems like in my lifetime it's gotten worse, so maybe I'm just paying attention more. So it, it's a long-term thing, and I realize most people out there probably don't have the time to go do that, but it does pay off to go find at least one guy who's an independent reporter whose word you can at least semi-trust. And it's, it's actually much more helpful if he's on the opposite side of the political spectrum because, you know, um, if he's the opposite but trustworthy, he'll check your own biases a lot more. So anyway, that's a long way of going. It takes a while. Yeah, um, and, and I agree with that. I mean, we could spend an entire separate episode talking about journalistic integrity and about how it's, uh, you know, certainly been denigrated since, you know, the heyday of, of journalism. It's all pretty much yellow journalism now anyways and sensationalism and grab the headlines to rally your base type deal and um, that's a good point you made about looking at sources from the other side of the aisle so I know myself as, as painful as it is I, I do uh, and I consider myself more of a, a centrist libertarian uh, I tend to look at articles that have opposing viewpoints to me because I don't want to live in an echo chamber um, but just to get mm. us back on track um, when coronavirus first came out, uh, you know, when, when this first started becoming a major headline or even before it started becoming a major headline, like you were really the first person I know of. And I think, you know, Conrad already echoed this, but, um, you know, to say, hey, guys, this is going to be a story. Get in front of this. And it was like January when you were sending us articles. Uh, the whole reason I went out and bought toilet paper when I did was because of the links you were sending me. And, and that might seem like a joke, but clearly your, your sources did, uh, were reliable there. So that's, you know, thank you for expounding upon that. But it, when, when you were, when, when you were sharing this information with people, uh, within your circle, did most people react in the way that Conrad and I did, or did most people kind of react in a, in a, uh, you know, like, ah, I don't know, this is kind of crazy. Like, thanks buddy. You know, I'll, I'll keep it under advisement. Um, what was the yeah, tone? Most, people, most people just well, I would send out I sent out a couple of mass emails. I think you guys were on it. Mm-hmm. Most people just never responded to me, or like my mom's just like, "Thanks, hon." They, you know, um, you know, family members 
you know, Dave Ramsey, the great financial guru, he has a great state. He's like, he calls, he calls it powdered your butt syndrome. He's like, when you, when you're a baby, anybody who changed your diaper and powdered your butt, they're not going to take you seriously when you, you know, start trying to give them adult type warnings like this, you know? So I didn't really expect like my aunts and uncles to, or my parents to like really take my words to heart. And then, you know, I had brought my brother-in-law and a couple other people. They were like, oh yeah, yeah, this is really going to be scary. Look, they're like, go have a Corona and relax. I mean, a couple, I got that joke a couple of times. Like you need to have a drink and relax. And sure enough, three weeks later, my brother who runs his own business, he had to shut it down. And he's just like, he was really he was kind of a man about it. He was just like, you know what? Credit where credit is due. You told me and I made fun of you. You were right. I was wrong. Um, you know, there's only, you know, you can only put the information out there and ring the bell as loud as you can. 90% of people aren't going to listen. Also, like people like my, you know, my father's, my father's glued to cable news and he believes it most of the time. And so when I was telling him about this, he's like, well, I, there's nothing on the news about this. And he's like, you're just trying to distract from the impeachment and, you know, because you like Trump or whatever. And I'm just like, dad, just go buy some extra food, just an extra week. <laughs> it's like, now we're going to be fine. And now he's, now, now everyone's on lockdown right now. So it's, you know, people's reaction is a lot of denial and a lot of, I don't want to deal with that. You know, it, it's much easier to not have to think about the future. Planning for the future is something that, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of brain power and takes a lot of energy and people don't want to do it. So yeah, besides you two, I don't think, I think maybe a couple of my other, you know, friends, male friends, my own age took me seriously and got some extra supplies. But other than that, most people just ignored what I said. And uh, you don't have to uh, answer with any specificity, but were, was there anybody that just completely rejected your advice or was like, dude, you're crazy. Leave me alone. Like did anybody take like that tact? Or was it mostly like I said, my, 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 my brother-in-law probably would be the first one came to mind. And then uh, I had a, uh, another friend of mine, uh, he was just like, yeah, you need to chill out. Or, and another friend of mine actually told me, stop texting me. You're freaking me out. Like he was getting anxiety. So like burying their head warmth. in the sand almost. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand that that friend specifically, he's been diagnosed with like social anxiety disorder. So, you know, more info for me, more information always helps me. Right. Like I like, like I'm an information junkie, but a lot of people too much information. It's an overload. It's fuck you. Get away from me. I don't want to hear that. I'd rather live in dissociation than have to deal with that. So, sure. I mean, I, I, did, I try not to take it personally. So it's interesting that you talk about the idea, the fact, the fact that some people in your life either don't want to hear this or don't believe you when you're someone who's clearly done a fair amount of research and over the last few months now um, I would say that pretty much everything that you've been predicting or highlighting has come true. And it kind of reminds me of myself over the last couple year or two, at least I've checked out a lot from following news religiously. I used to be a news junkie and the last couple of years, I just decided that this isn't adding value to my life. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, keep an eye on the headlines just to make sure there's nothing major like an asteroid coming that's going to wipe us out and I need to, uh, you know, run for the hills. But aside from that, I got a lot of my uh, daily news reports from friends or people talking about things that they saw on CNN or uh, Fox News or, or what have you. But then this thing hit and you, like I said, you were one of the uh, early people in my life who was sounding the alarm and it 
since that happened, I, I've really been fixated again on on news and finding. I would agree with you. I think finding the right sources is really problematic. Um, it's very difficult to suss out who's telling you the truth, who's not. And looking at some of those independent news sources like the Tim Pools of the world who are out there, they're not beholden to a corporation uh, which might have its own agenda or at least um, its its own push in terms of ideology is critical and is very difficult to do and, and to suss those people out. So is there... A, like a smell test that someone who's trying to figure that out for themselves could use when trying to figure out what sources to follow? It's, uh, you know, honestly, as it's just a, for me, finding this stuff was just a, you know, a product of my life. I used to be a total TV junkie when I was a kid and growing up. And so, but I watched so you watch so much of it, you begin to notice the patterns and how the stories are presented and then when you read history, you know, for example, when you read about histories of, you know, like the 1960s or something, um, the 1950s, you know, whenever you see that presented on the news or in media, I used to see it presented as, you know, let's take an example from the 1950s. There was something called the McCarthy scare, which is McCarthy, McCarthyism and the Red Scare. And the way it's depicted in a lot of TV shows and news media looking back is, there was this mass paranoia about communist agents infiltrating the U.S. government. It was all just paranoia. And there was this guy named McCarthy, and he tried to he lied, and he tried to like get people thrown in jail for false reasons. And it was all BS, and eventually he overcame that, but it was a very scary time. Now, but reading history books about that past, our country's government really was infiltrated by a lot of Soviet agents, and not just our country. Um, we know that in, for example, in England, their intelligence service was infiltrated by the Cambridge Five, who were five upper-class British native-born, some of them I think were actually like aristocrats, who ended up all being spies for the Soviet Union, and a couple of them ended up defecting to the Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, there's, been a, there's a, been a lot of debate about, you know, McCarthy really was sounding an alarm about something that was real. Whether he was exaggerating for political purposes is another question. But, you know, we know from the Venona decrypts, we know from um, various things that came out. We actually had a, from FDR's presidency onward, we had a huge problem with Soviets getting into our government and getting very close to the president. Al Alger has got very close to FDR and was basically giving all our Manhattan Bob information to the Soviets. That's why they were able to develop their own nuclear weapons. But we don't see that in our native in our in the usual media and the usual news reports it's depicted very differently and that started me not trusting or at least questioning some of these you know reports that i would see and you, you wonder today how much is just not being reported we know that back in the 1930s the new york times deliberately decided not to report on the on the famines that the soviet union were creating because they were you know more on the side of um, not communism but they were more left-wing than right-wing Walter Durante was deliberately not talking about it. So it's like these people, you know, once you realize the people giving you the news are just humans and they're going to have biases and they have to make a paycheck too and somebody owns them, some corporation owns them and therefore they're not going to report against that. That's when you start to question it. And the internet has been a boon because then you see people who, like I said, Mike Cernovich, you know, he would constantly call out 
corporate bias during the 2016 election really turned me on to him because he's getting things right. You know, he's the one who made a big deal about Hillary's health. He's like, something is wrong with this woman. And then all of a sudden she faints on 9-11 and the news media finally starts taking it seriously. It's like, yeah, why haven't we questioned about her health yet? You know, she's 69 years old. You know, we deserve what we got from Trump, which was a doctor's report. So right. it, it's just, a, it, I'm sorry, I don't mean to ramble, but it's just like a long, it's just a long process of just looking at things and looking how it's reported in the common media I grew up in and then look historically going back and finding, oh, they, they missed a lot of things. Or the story, I, the story I was presented is not exactly what happened. And mm-hmm. and yet they don't question. So yeah, I'm sorry. That's a long answer. No, you you bring up a really good point, and uh, something that I think we've seen even in in modern times is is going back to the start of the Iraq War, when you had a lot of these large news agencies like New York Times, NBC, CNN, all, all the big ones, almost lining up and reporting as a fact what the Republican administration, which by all means, I mean, number one, because their job as journalists is to question the government, but number two, I mean, given their bias, you would think that uh, liberal-oriented mass media would be questioning heavily uh, what a Republican administration is telling them in, in regards to what's going on in Iraq and why we need to go to war with them. And they, by and large, at the time, accepted the narrative um, what the administration was saying um, that Iraq was doing and the justification for that war. Um, so that's something I think in our lifetimes, that is a, I mean, if you go back and read some of those news stories from what, 2002, 2003, and knowing what you know now, it's just mind blowing that some of these uh, news organizations that were supposedly highly reputable, never questioned that narrative or never really did uh, dug deeper. And I mean, I know, I know there's some, some thoughts that the news organizations themselves being corporations stood a great deal to gain from a war. I mean, if, if there's a war going on, obviously a lot more people are going to be tuned in to their television or reading the newspaper. So um, there's certainly some incentive there uh, for them to report on that and, and help us, as a country get into a war that would ultimately benefit them in their from the business aspect. Yeah. The business aspect is scary. I mean, one thing that's really striking about the New York times in particular was for many, many years, they um, were very anti uh, illegal immigration and their argument was simple. Illegal immigration hurts native born workers and hate hurts unions when they were very pro union. And then at one point, and I believe it was, I don't know if it was after 9-11 or just before it, but they, you know, the internet was coming in and was hurting their bottom line and they needed an influx of cash. And there's this Mexican billionaire named Carlos Slim. He has a monopoly on um, Mexican telecommunications. Basically, every single international call that goes from Mexico to the United States or the United States to Mexico, he gets a piece of. So he's very, very pro, um, you know, open borders. Mm-hmm. So he bought a ton of New York Times stock. It was Class C stock, I believe, but it was still, it was a huge influx of cash that he put in there. And almost immediately, after decades of 
the stance, the New York Times switched and became very pro open borders. It was like a it was like a finger snap, and like they didn't even like there wasn't even like a, a like a you know like a headline like Carlos Swim gives us money now we're not going to comment on illegal immigration. It was oh, open borders is great for everybody, and right there is a glaring example of how corporate money can you know make this supposedly you know substantial news organization just completely abandon their principles um mm. and it's, that's that's not to say that you know the principle they're now espousing isn't right it's this but they're not saying it because it's right they're saying it because their bottom line dictates because carlos swim said i'm not going to pay you this money unless you completely review 180 on your political opinions about open borders and so you know that's just a glaring example i thought and but yeah right. the new york times is like yeah, they became neoliberal, you know, the, you know, you can talk about the politics in the 90s and Bill Clinton and all that, but right about now, it's, it's, it's so strange to talk about here, here in 2020, we've got, we've got the Democratic Party being in favor of interventionism in foreign nations wanting us to bomb the, the crap out of Syria and fight with Russia and, you know, well, and the never Trumpers too, I should say, there, there are Republicans who do it too, like the neocons, but the leader of the Republicans is seen as isolationist and not wanting to get in foreign wars. I mean, think about how much of a reverse that is from, you know, even 20 years ago when we would have expected that the Democrats would have been hesitant about a foreign war and the Republicans pro foreign war. So, yeah, right. yeah everything's changed because of money. Very good point. Um, I think this is a good time to go to quick break. And when we come back, we have some more questions as it pertains to the shutdown that we're currently in. And certainly want to pick your brain a little bit about the legal aspects of that. So we will be back in just a few seconds. back from break now and one question i want to get into uh or it's not just one question but there's this kind of a whole um area that we can get into here is the legality of the lockdown so a lot of states are ordering businesses to be closed they're ordering citizens not to go to to public places to i think just this last week mass state of massachusetts is now mandating you wear a face covering if you're uh, in a public place. So there's yep. a lot of stuff that if you, fa- if you rewound the clock to just a few months ago, I would have thought if, if you told me that this is what the government is saying, I would have told you that there, there has to be some sort of revolution going on or there, there's got to be something really crazy with, with the world that we're living in. And I probably wouldn't have believed it, but here we are in April, or excuse me, now May of, of 2020, and this is a reality in a lot of places. What is your take on the legality of this, the constitutionality? Like, where where does that authority come from? Does Is it a real authority, or is it just something that is being pushed with, with no real legal precedent? Um, first of all, there is legal precedent. Um, because we're in the United States, I don't know if anyone's listening to this outside the United States, but we have a federalist system, which means um, the states have a lot of power. And in most places, that's not the case. Um, you know, a famous story was um, 
in England at one point during Margaret Thatcher's uh, rule as prime minister, there was like a, a police force that was just giving, um, that was doing something she didn't like. She just abolished the police force in this small town and just replaced it with all Roman cops. And she could do that because that's the way England is. But in America, the states are more sovereign. Um, so we're talking about two authorities here. We're talking mm -hmm. about the federal government and the state. The federal government has the power to institute brief quarantines or quarantines based on a number of things, general police power, and the big one is the interstate commerce clause. Um, for those of you who are not constitutional nerds, and I don't blame you, it's very boring. The, com the commerce clause is part of the constitution that has been wildly expanded since uh, inception. And basically now it's used as a justification by Congress to do everything. Any, because everybody, because we have such great transportation in the 21st century, because our communication, I'm talking to a guy in New Hampshire right now, um, you know, uh, on the phone, and this is interstate commerce. Because of that, uh, Congress's power has increased, whereas back in the day, to cross the state border took a lot of work, and to send something across the state border took a lot of work. So they had far less power. All that is to say they have the power to restrict people from traveling. The states, meanwhile, have much broader powers because they are more sovereign in this area, and they were always considered to have more police powers. And so, you know, states can do things that the federal government can't. The federal government can't abolish a state, but a state can't abolish, like, a town government because a town government has no constitutional standing. So if, you know, this, this is why you often hear, like, a state, take, a state government takes over the running of a town and receivership because it can do that because it just has huge sweeping powers the the issue the only things that really restrict state power against the citizens are the the constitutional amendments that apply to the state so what we're really talking about is the first amendment and the right to peaceably assemble religious assembly and and right of free association those can be suspended um in cases where it's not peaceable and in the in the areas of a pandemic Historically speaking, that's not a peaceable assembly. And we can look back at our history and see that. 1918, Spanish flu comes up a lot these days because it's a very similar disease. Back then, they were restricting, you know, many states were restricting association, telling people they had to stay indoors. People voluntarily uh, went along with it. Um, but the rationale was this is just a short term fix because otherwise we might all die. Um, if that thing had lasted five years, especially with the war veterans returning from World War One, I, I can bet there would have been riots and revolts and revolution. Um, historically speaking, if you look at history, you know, when plagues are broken out throughout the world, people and governments have suspended people's normal natural rights in those societies, medieval times, Roman times. But then once the plague passed, it appears that things did go back to normal. Which is why I'm, you know, I'm glad libertarians and freedom lovers are angry about the lockdowns and are trying to fight them because I do think they're overreaching. But at the same time, I'm not as worried about it lasting further than, um, you know, whenever the disease passes because too many people, it, it's just the nature of it. It's just, you know, the economy's a wreck right now. They're not going to have the money to pay cops to make a permanent police state. Um, you, you, you know, this wasn't a military-type takeover where you could have, you know, killed all the insurgents. So this is just a situation where I just think I'm not as panicked about my individual liberties not lasting. That mm -hmm. said, yeah, 
the governments, uh, the state governments do have the power to, in the short term, tell you to stay home, close your business. But, you know, they, you know, if the pandemic passed, they, you know, they can't do things like not, not until the disease is gone. It's until the emergency is gone, until we're, you know, relatively sure as a society that letting people go back to work is not going to cause the hospitals to become overloaded. And I think that's the metric people are really focusing on. If the hospitals aren't overloaded, we should be able to go back to work. And I think they're right for doing that. I think that's the, that's the correct metric. I think people are going to adhere to that because the gov state governments cannot keep up. I mean, look, I live on the beach here in Massachusetts. It's Sunday. We just had a, the mask. Um, in, the mask imposition technically doesn't come until this Wednesday, but and all the parking on the beach is blocked off by cones, and yet the beach is full. All right, you're not going to just not going to be have the ability to put every one of those people in jail or fine them or enforce those fines. The courts here in Massachusetts are closed until June 1st, um, and that's causing a huge backlog um, because. People need to be arraigned. People have criminal trials, all that kind of good stuff. Um, sorry, I'm just rambling a little bit. But the, the bottom line is they have it for the short term because of the 10th Amendment, because the 10th Amendment specifically reserves to the states the powers that are not reserved to the federal government. And the federal government has the power for the Interstate Commerce Clause. So they could technically ban all interstate travel if they really wanted to and put set up military checkpoints. But good luck to that. And... <laughs> I, you know, that would be a ridiculous thing, maybe out of New York City, which is, you know, a hot spot right now. But, you know, you're not going to, you know, Michigan or Alaska or, you know, it's not Alaska, but, you know, Washington State, they're not going to be able to do that. You have to also, it's not just about the ban, it's about the enforcement. If you can't enforce it, it's not worth it. And right now they couldn't enforce it on Revere Beach, so they're not going to be able to enforce it nationally. Okay, so uh, just just a couple follow-ups to what you said. Um, I know you said uh, for people that don't follow constitutional law, I, I personally find it fascinating. I have no formal law training, but just, you know, the nuances of the Constitution and, and the way things work between the states and government uh, do fascinate me. So I want your opinion from a legal aspect on a couple different things. One is, and correct me if I'm wrong, in order to... If, if a citizen wanted to um, sue the state government or sue the federal government for one of these shutdowns, uh, isn't there required to be some type of injury? So if these shutdowns, for instance, Baker's mask proposal, right, if somebody was to, say, maybe make a uh, right to assembly claim or, or, or something of that nature, you know, regarding the masks or, or the 10 person rule, um, but there's no actual fine. He's just saying, you know, hey, this is what we want. There, there's no teeth behind this law. So is that something that one could even go to court for? Yes. I mean, there's various ways. First of all, it's only a $300 fine. So generally speaking, one of these um, various political organizations, what they usually do is they'll send somebody out to deliberately violate it. They'll find some cop who's willing to write the ticket, and that's all they need. But you can also go do things like get an injunction um, and, or get a um, declaratory judgment in federal court. Declaratory judgment is large is, uh, is a tool that's used. It basically says, this law is in place. I'm afraid I'm going to violate it, or it's likely I'm going to violate it, or something to that effect. Um, I need a judgment from the court saying that this, this law is you know, illegal. This usually happens in like free speech cases. 
you know, the government will pass a law saying, you know, no foul language, and there'll be declaratory judgment thought for an injunction, and the ACLU or the First Amendment uh, Foundation, the First Amendment, whatever, one of these foundations will be like, look, this is overly broad, and it's going to stem, you know, free speech. We don't need to, you know, we're ever, somebody can, you know, eventually someone's going to violate the law. So that's usually declaratory judgment injunction. But yes, okay. usually you, you need to show harm. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be some jackass somewhere who's just not going to wear a mask just because he doesn't feel like it. And there's going to be some cop who's going to write him a ticket. And, or, you know, you know, what usually happens with these small time things is the cop pulls somebody over. He thinks that the guy is a dirty guy. Maybe he, he's got him on his radar being a member of a gang, but he can't prove anything. And then the cop will find like a little thing to charge him with. And he'll say, okay, you're not wearing a mask, so here's your ticket. And it's basically a way to keep him on the cop's radar because they think he's dirty, but that's the only thing they can get him on. So that's kind of what, you know, that, that's what I expect is going to happen. Any tickets that come out of this will be like people who were doing something worse, but they can't prove it, so they'll give them tickets for masks. Okay. Um, and then, so I understand that, you know, there are special emergency situations where, uh, you know, government can order a shutdown like this. You referenced 1918, and and part of the problem in 1918, um, from my research into it, seems to be that they reopened too early, and there was a second surge. Um, in in your opinion, what is the the limit to uh, the authority that the government has to keep business shut down? Um, obviously, indefinitely isn't the answer, but is there any type of statutory limit to these powers or is there any type of precedent, precedental limit to these powers? Statutory, no, because this is um, the nature of emergency powers is there's a vague threat. The president or the governor can take the steps that he feels necessary in emergency because he's the executive to, you know, keep public order. Um, constitutionally, it's just going to be a balancing test. You know, right now we still got enough health officials out there, especially, you know, NIH and CDC saying, oh, we need to keep this going. But, you know, slowly more and more uh, medical people are stepping out of line and going, no, this, you know, they're, they're wrong or they're overshooting this. You know, Fauci's estimates have come down. It, 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 you know, I hate to say it depends because that's the cheap lawyer answer but it really does depend on what judge you got it in front of and what the situation was at the time and because this is changing so rapidly you know very rapidly it's changing week to week you know last week i, I last week literally the courts were supposed to open on may on, on on may 4th and then we got all of us lawyers got a email from the court saying no we're doing this another month so as of last week, we all thought we were going to court this week and we we're all going to have to like be in a huge scrum and fighting for our clients and everything. And now it's like, no, you have another month, uh, you know, to do all your stuff. So it's, it's, it's a headache in the, in the sense that courts don't move fast. Courts really don't move fast. If you've ever had a court case, they move very slow. You'll, you know, even the fastest thing, like a traffic ticket, that takes a month or two to resolve sometimes six months if it's a backlog. So the, the, the thing about this is, if, if some, let's say, I'm sure it's happening right now. Let's say someone brought 
a federal suit right now saying that the lockdown in their state is illegal. They might be able to get, to get an injunction within a couple of weeks, but an injunction is not the end of the case. An injunction is temporary stay in whatever the order is. It's going to take many, many months of litigation to actually get a ruling about this. Now, I know a lot of the uh, you know, more libertarian-minded folks out there are just worried like, well, the government can just declare a permanent emergency. The government just can't declare that. They're doing it based on medical evidence. And that medical evidence would be used in court. But if Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bix and the rest of the people at the CDC and NIH came out and said, no, there's no threat anymore, then the federal government's right to an emergency would be severely lessened. If, the if you got a bunch of hospital officials in there and said, no, our hospitals aren't overloaded, we don't need to have this stay in place anymore, you know, then, then their authority would be lessened. Uh, you know, right now there's a split because I think here in the Northeast, we're seeing very, you know, Boston is an epicenter. New York City is definitely an epicenter. But out in the Midwest, places like Michigan, you know, that governor is acting ridiculously, but they're not an epicenter. So she's acting more draconian than Charlie Baker. But, you know, most of the people there are perfectly fine and could, they could, you know, from what, from what I see, they could legitimately open their businesses and really not spread the disease. But certain, you know, dense urban areas need to watch out for that. So, you know, like I said, it depends. And I really hate to say that, it depends. But right now they have the authority, but maybe in two weeks they don't have the authority. It changes every minute. So taking off your uh, legal hat for a moment, Matus the lawyer versus Matus the individual. And obviously I know, uh, you know, for the purposes of a podcast, Nothing you say can be uh, should be construed as legal advice. I'm I'm guessing, but but you personally, what what yeah. do you feel yeah. like the the limits are, um, in your own opinion? I well, I think the limits are first of all, I used to live in New York City, which is an epicenter, so I've been kind of looking at that a lot. And what I've been seeing is the officials keep saying there's a huge emergency, but then they keep acting like it's not like the mayor of new york city has you know he's de blasio he's come out and said oh it's a huge emergency everyone needs to stay at home everyone needs to wear masks or it's a thousand dollar fine meanwhile there's a video of him two days ago walking around the park with his wife and like several members of his staff no mask just and they're all hanging out together there was there's been uh pictures posted online of people in various new york city parks just like can't you know having picnics and stuff. Um, it, it, I, I feel like the, 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 that people are moving towards, you know, screw this ban. I'm just going to go outside and get some sun and hang out with my friends. You know, I, I think people are willing to wait in line at stores. And I, I think the way that they should do it is this. All the restrictions we see now in grocery stores and, uh, you know, CVS and all that, that should just be in every store. Like, you have to wear a mask to walk in. You have to stay six feet apart when you're in line. And, but other than that, you know, let the clothing stores open. Let, the, let Chipotle open. Let the people go in. At restaurants, just make the restriction 50% capacity as opposed to 100%. So you remove half the tables. You space them out. And, if, you know, you offer curbside delivery for people who don't want to go inside. And that's the way you do it. Uh, you know, the, the hospitals are not overflowing to capacity. I think we've beaten this curve. 
And if it does come back with a vengeance, we can always go back to what we just did. But I think that's the way, as an individual, I would like to see. I think it's a good compromise. I think we definitely need to open the courts again because, I mean, we have. Let me just say something. If you think, if you ever dealt with the legal system, it's going to be ten times worse in the next six months. Everything's going to be slow. Everything's going to be backlogged. Judges are not going to listen to your arguments more than ten seconds because they've got fifty people behind you. I've got clients who are landlords or tenants and they're fighting housing eviction or they're trying to evict some bum client. And it's like now they can't evict them because they can't get to court to get the eviction. It's a pain in the ass. I've got clients who are disabled and they can't get the disability money because they were denied and now their hearing is pushed back several months. You know, it's just causing real problems in individual people's lives. And while the stimulus checks are helping, it's better to get people back to work. We need the economy to start working again. Again, if, if, this, if the rate suddenly spiked up again, like we were afraid, like what is happening, in, I know in China, a second city has had that happen, then we can go back to the lockdown as we have. But as, we, as I'm sitting here today, I think it's okay to start just you know, doing a half go back to work. Everyone wears a mask, everyone stays six feet apart, you know, but we can assemble in groups more than 10 maybe not New York City for at least the next couple of weeks to see how they're doing and any other epicenter. But other than that, I think we're ready to do that. Matthias, I'm interested in your thoughts on what do you th- or what is your analysis of the governors and mayors that have gone too far? So maybe, for example, Gretchen Whitmer uh, out in Michigan. The people who, have, who, who are really taking this and running with it and really flexing their muscles in terms of author- executive authority. What, what do you think is in it for them? What, what, what's their game plan here? What are they trying to accomplish by, by doing that? Well, I think, you know, it's just a natural, first of all, every politician is trying to outdo the next guy. And this is a real chance for a lot of, especially small state governors, or maybe I don't want to say backwater, but Michigan's not a back, none of them backwaters, but you know, maybe, you know, not as in the national news as much as New York State to sort of, you know, get their name out there. You know, politicians are people too, and they're ambitious. And, you know, this governor of Michigan, she's female, and Joe Biden has said, oh, I'm going to have a female vice president, you know, and she's like, ooh, (laughs) if I get my name out there, you know, I could be, you know, the female vice president. So let's let's make some noise right now. Um, You know, there is a race right now to be Joe Biden's vice president for nominee, and because and it's very serious because i think he's going through some uh, mental uh, degenerative things and it's or at least people are perceiving as that and so therefore like who he picks as vice president a lot of people are paying attention to that more so than usual mm-hmm. and from her point of view that's that but for most of these governors it's a chance to make a national statement every governor wants to be senator or president you know andrew cuomo clearly is going to use this as a stepping stone. He'll use the bounce off this and either run for president one day or run for senator or get his name out there and become something big. Gavin Newsom in California is the same thing. It's, it's, it's a chance to show leadership and it's also a chance for extra power. I mean, let's just be blunt about it. You know, if you give a politician a chance for more power, 90% of the time they'll take it. The mayor of LA, Los Angeles, who actually doesn't have that much power relatively to most big city mayors, he's using drones 
or he's threatened, I should say, to use drones to hunt down people who are outside without masks. I mean, if you told me that four months ago, I would have said that's insane. That sounds like something from Escape from New York or L.A. But he was talking about it on just a normal cable news talk show. It's like, yeah, we're going to use drones to go find people who aren't wearing masks. He's like, are you insane? But if for him, it's another tool in the toolbox. It's like, oh, I get more power. That's great. You know, I'm more important now. So, but it's really been heartening to see a lot of protesters and a lot of the orneriness of Americans come out. You know, protesters in Michigan, there's protesters in LA. These are people who go, you know, these are people, just average people who live paycheck to paycheck. They need their jobs. They need to make money. They are, you know, they are not in a threatened area. And they're saying, look, this is draconian. And it's nice. It's really nice to see that. I was nice to see that in Texas. The Texas governor has responded to that. Um, I'm not so sure about opening beaches, but you know, maybe that'll work in Florida and Georgia. Who knows? You know, mm-hmm. it's also wonderful to have 50 states where we can do sort of these experiments. It's like, okay, we give them, you know, a little more freedom in Georgia and Florida, see what happens, you know, and just kind of compare that to, you know, Michigan, which is draconian lockdown. And also, but these politicians, they're also thinking short term. They're not thinking long term. I can guarantee you the governor of Michigan is not thinking, how is this going to be used against me in two years? Because she's too concentrated on the moment. Cuomo is not realizing, you know, that if this doesn't get him to the presidency or to be a senator, this could really hurt him. It could set him and his party back in, you know, New York politics for a while. So a lot of them are exercise in short-term thinking and that's but it's nice to see the protesters i i do i like them both i do like the governors for showing leadership because i do think cuomo and newsom and the governor of michigan are doing some positive things i don't want to totally rag on them but at the same time i like the pushback that the ordinary citizens and the rebellious parties are giving these people you know like you know here in massachusetts there was an example where you know, Charlie Baker um, declared that, uh, you know, wanted to close all the gun stores. And there was a guy you know, who ran a gun store out in, um, I think it was Worcester County. And he said, I'm not closing. And he was delivering, he was doing curbside gun sales. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I think his show, I think his store is called The Gun Runner. And it was like, you know, I can see both sides of that equation. And I'm glad there's pushback because it's, you know, as a lawyer, Everything is defined by a case where two people fight. So I do like to see that. And I, and I, I'm a, you know, it's hard to say I'm on both sides, but I am on both sides of these kinds of issues. Although I think gun stores are necessary. Um, if we're going to close, you know, if a pharmacy is necessary and, and things like that, I think those things should be open. But anyway, that's just me. You know, one of the tenets that I feel like I hold or something that's really uh, crucial to me is I am someone who generally is anti-authoritarian and I really dislike when people are so just open themselves to being subjects of an authoritarian system or just failing to question things or just blindly following a leader. That's something that uh, I think really frustrates me and I've seen it a lot more. I'm not one who normally gets into Facebook debates or Facebook arguments, but I do see lately and something I've been engaging in is that Facebook argument lately where um, some of my local New Hampshire uh, news sites or or New Hampshire 
uh, update sites, if you will. I've been openly having debates with, with people on these forums. And what I'm finding is that I'll ask questions or I'll, I'll try to have a legitimate argument. And at some point people just don't either don't have the information or their sole argument is, well, because the government told us to, or because you must clearly, if you want businesses to reopen, you obviously want elderly people in nursing homes to die has been essentially a breakdown of of some of the arguments I'm seeing. And I think I'm with you on the idea that I like that there's pushback and I want to see more pushback, um, especially when, we're kind of at a point now, it seems like that we can reopen. I mean, in most places, uh, we don't need this top-down approach. We can kind of take it case by case um, at the very least, um, you know, just from a practical standpoint, like we don't need to shut down entire states um, and certainly entire country. John, do you, do you have anything else as far as follow-up? Um, no, I, I think that the the pushback is absolutely necessary. It's almost like you're required to have two sides to function, right? Because the answer always seems to be somewhere in the middle. So um, I I tend to agree with you there. It's just, it's hard to walk that fine balance. So when does the shutdown become too much? Or when does the, um, you know, when is the shutdown not enough? It's, It's just really tricky. And for any politician having to navigate this right right now, you know, it's it's got to be uh, just a, a monumental nightmare for them to deal with. But I will say uh, I'm in agreement with John where uh, I think the governors are doing a, a, an outstanding job here of balancing that. And, and I think leadership at all levels from Trump to the state governors on both sides of the aisle just are, are really doing a tremendous job navigating all this uh, uncharted territory, really. Uh, I, I guess, uh, John, is, is there any anything you can compare um, this to in American history? I, I know a lot of times this pandemic and the shutdown gets compared to 1918, but back then uh, travel was limited. So it wasn't. You know, um, and, and also back then, the, the journalists were limited to talking about this because they didn't want to damage the war effort, the, the morale by mentioning the flu. Um, is there anything else that you can kind of compare this to? I mean, uh, I've been trying to find a good, uh, you know, comparison in history. I mean, I've looked further back. Like I said, you've looked at the medieval plagues or the Roman plagues or any time a plague broke out in world history. There seemed to be a, a consensus that, you know, of, you know, we're going to do this quarantine and the shutdown and people ran away to the country. And then once the plague broke, people went just kind of filtered back into normal life it just like even in these medieval feudal societies the the lords didn't aggrandize more power and the serfs didn't give up more power if anything the reverse happened because what happened uh, you know what interesting about history is how much of it we you know we, we get wrong in our common understanding and our common understanding about medieval times for example there's this belief that the Lord just controlled the serfs for a thousand years until the, the Renaissance. And then there was this, you know, then scientific revolution and then middle class started to develop and then serfs started to be able to climb out of that. But that's not really what happened during the middle ages. Whenever a plague broke out, it would kill 
you know, the Black Plague killed a lot of people, right? But what happened was it would kill mostly, or at least predominantly, the lower class people, the serfs, because they had the worst nutrition, they were the poorest. But the result was that afterwards, the serfs would get a lot of political power because there was fewer of them. So they started demanding more higher wages and better, you know, a better way of life because the lords weren't going to work the land. The priests weren't going to work the land. So the serfs were like, give us, either you give us more power and give us more, you know, give us fewer taxes uh, or we're going to strike. And so there was these various events in the Middle Ages about peasants' revolt where these huge number of peasants, these mobs would get together and basically a, a modern protest or a modern union or a modern negotiation or maybe a tribune of the pledge. And they struck for higher wages, and it, you know it seemed to work out pretty well. So I mean, we don't really hear about that because we don't really get taught about the effects of mass disease. But the effect is is that a certain portion of the population gets sick, dies off, and then the remaining part, you know, there's a renegotiation, usually for the betterment of the lower classes. So that's what I would, you know. But we're not we're not having the mass death, the mass death of the Black Plague. I think one of the benefits for this is, um, and I'll go on a tangent here, and you can tell me to stop talking whenever. I'll go right but ahead, please. The thing is, I, I, you know, there's been a thing called Trump's luck, where things seem to happen that help Trump politically, where it's just random. Like, for example, he started talking in a speech once about the problems in Sweden. And the, the American media was making fun of him. It's like, there's no problem with Sweden. Sweden's a paradise. And, they, and that, it was on a weekend. And during that weekend, when they're claiming Sweden was a paradise, all of a sudden, all these bombings started to happen in Sweden. Because all these immigrants who were dissatisfied with Sweden started bombing you know, Sweden. And the, the American media at that exact moment turned its cameras on Sweden. And so like, it seemed to back up Trump's assertion. He, you know... He was lucky that that weekend that he made that speech happened to be the same weekend that, you know, the bombings were intensified. Um, on this situation, okay, going back, the American economy averages a slowdown or a recession once every 10 years. <clears throat> That's been the way for like, uh, you know, a very long time. So, um, but the last recession or slowdown we had in this country was 2008. So we were due for one. That's 12 years ago. The but and usually what happens is when a recession hits, whoever's the president gets blamed for it, rightly or wrongly, and his party gets blamed for it. So 2008, the recession hits, Bush is in office. He he and his party get blamed for it. Obama gets a boost in the polls, and he ends up being president. Um, um, I think in uh, the late 70s there was stagflation. Jimmy Carter. He gets blamed for a bad economy. Reagan gets the boost. He ends up being president. Um, whether, like I said, whether it's fair or not, that usually is what happens. However, there have been a couple instances in history where that doesn't happen. In 2001, when Bush was president, 9-11 um, happened, and then we had a recession. No one blamed Bush for the recession because everyone blamed just 9-11. They're like, oh, yeah, things are crappy because we got attacked by terrorists. This seems like it's going to happen again. We've had, we've, we're having the biggest economic slowdown since 1929, 1931. And yet no one's going to blame the president for this or Congress or anyone in our government. 
because it's a disease that came from, you know, from communist China. So we're having the economic recession and yet the president is not getting blamed for it. And it's a remarkable moment because it's such a huge economic downturn and yet he's not, you know, no one's going to blame him for it. And anyone who tries is going to be, you know, you know, and if at any point we start to get better over the next few months, like let's say the, you know, let's say that everything opens back up in June, the economy starts getting better. There's no resurgence of the disease by November, you know, unemployment's down right now. It's like 20%. It's down to like 10% or even further five, 8%. He's that's going to help him politically. And it's just, you know, just, in, just, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not saying, oh, yay, that's great, because obviously it's a horrible thing. I'm just saying from a political point of view, it's just amazing that he might be the first president, you know, in like 20 years to have a recession and not get blamed for it. You're probably spot on there, and it's really interesting to, to consider that. I have one final question, but before we do so, so John is having some battery issues, so I want to go to a quick break uh, yep. so we can make sure we're not going to lose this audio here and... I'll ask you one more follow-up, and we'll come back from break. We're back from break now, and I had one final question for you, Matus, and that is, what do you think is going to happen? So what, and let me back up a little bit. So after 9-11, which was probably the last time we had a, an issue in this country that affected so many people uh, at various levels. Yep. Yep. So after 9-11, we saw things like the TSA, um, ex- enhanced uh, searches. We saw an increase in some of the surveillance state uh, and the surveillance apparatus of the country. And um, it, this was something that society kind of accepted by and large, because of what had happened on 9-11. Do you see, what, do you, what are your predictions, or can you give me one or two things that you think might change forever as a result of what we're going through right now? Oh, that's a difficult one. Because first of all, like I, um, I should have been more clear, there, some of the people that I listen to like, um, have been saying, look, there's a chance for a resurgence here because China's already seen the resurgence. Um, you might not have seen this in the news, but they've shut down another major, major city in China in the last, uh, I think, week. And that's not Wuhan, and I forget the name, and I have to look it up, um, because they saw a resurgence. That might be because the, of the disease. It might be because China opened up too early because you know the communists didn't want to hurt the economy. And it, you know, it's a complicated thing. So... That's that's a touch and go thing. I think um, in terms of permanence, I think we're going to see more people involved in um, like like doing more prepper type stuff. Like I know that show on um, what's it called? Like that crazy show where they make fun of prepper people. Oh. It's on like Discovery Channel or something. Tuesday Preppers? Yeah, yeah, That's one of those one. things. And that was kind of like one of those shows where they're just like, look at these wacky, crazy people. And I, I think like more people are going to look at those people like, they got the right idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you when you I mean I remember when I first walked into a, a supermarket. No, no, and this is what happened. I walked in this Home Depot, and this was just before the lockdowns. And I asked them for a mask, and the guy's just like, "We haven't had a mask in a week." Like, and I was just like, I, and I want to say my blood ran cold, but I was just sort of like, "Oh." You know, I'm, you know, a little bit late to the party here in a very bad way. And so that's when I went home and I like Googled like how to make your own mask and all that stuff. And I think that's when I first first sent out my email, but it was sort of like, okay, like, you know, this is real. And now to walk into grocery stores and to see empty shelves, like I'd never, you know, I'm a grown adult. I've never seen that before in my life in America. I think a lot of people are going to start like, Oh, maybe I should have like an extra couple of weeks of food in my home, or maybe I should have a a plan to you know get out of the big city if something happens. Or you know, I, I think I think uh, people of this generation, and when I say that, I say people who are adults in this generation are going to be more prepper minded uh, going into the future. In terms of the government, it's difficult to say because, uh, like I said, historically in the past, pandemics did not produce. Um, the kind of draconian measures that a terrorist attack did. And we're, we're still in the middle of all this. I'm hoping that it causes us, and I know you guys, you know, for your more libertarian-minded people, this might be painful, but I hope it causes us to be more protectionist and bring some manufacturing home because the results of this pandemic have been both China and Italy and India, I should say, which are huge manufacturers of medicines, um, they started um, imposing restrictions on exports because they wanted to keep the medicine that they made for their own people. And also, you know, they didn't have as many workers making them. So bringing manufacturing, at least of critical supplies back to the United States where it can be under U.S. control for medicine, um, probably if Trump and people like him get their way, that would probably be one of the things that I would see a positive. Because, you know, I when I heard that India got it, that really caused me to freak out a little. I'm like, India is a big source of our medicine. Mm-hmm. I think even more so than China. And I know people who need who need constant resupplies of medication for their very health. And I'm like, if we didn't get that, what you know, I honestly didn't know what I would do. <laughs> you know, you right. can have all these preferences. You can have all these prepper plans about how to hunt for food and all that stuff, and, you know, whatever you do in the emergency. But what would you do if you couldn't get insulin or something? It's like, I don't know how to make insulin. I have no clue. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, I'll say that I don't consider myself a prepper in any sort of way, but I will say I, I think I'm someone who is keeping an eye on being prepared for um, for situations ahead of time. And this was absolutely something that I went through that certainly highlighted some things that I was lacking in terms of supplies and preparedness for. I mean, if you the stereotypical prepper is someone who's hiding out in a bunker with a, a cache a cache full of guns and ammo, and this is not a situation where, by and large, that's going to help you. I mean, this is a different type of event than where you might have people kicking down your door. I mean, certainly 
we could have gotten there. It seems like we're going to make it through it by and large without any sort of mass um, lack of rule of law. But um, yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree that I think um, from a preparation standpoint, hopefully if, if we're not taking anything else away from this, that being prepared is, is something that everyone owes to both themselves and their family. So I, I think, I think a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really a, great pleasure to have you on the podcast and you brought a lot of great information that um, I think our audience was really going to appreciate. Uh, I want to give you one last chance to kind of plug yourself and your contact information. How can get someone get a hold of you if they, uh, if they either want your services or, or want to talk to you? Uh, if you want to talk to me, um, you can email me. My name is, it's just my email. It, my, my email is just my name. It's John J O H N at Matuslaw.com. M is in Mary, A is in Apple, T is in Tom, E is in Eagle, U is in Umbrella, S is in Superman, L-A-W dot com. Um, my business hours are 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, 617-475-0158. Like I said, I'm licensed in Massachusetts and New York. And so my legal advice, I'm not giving any legal advice in the show, and those are my areas of legal expertise. Well, thanks again for being on, and we look forward to having you on a future episode. Okay, thank you very much, and uh, appreciate you guys having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Simply Speaking. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find our blog at simplyspeakingonline.wordpress.com. And you can email us at simplyspeakingpodcast.gmail.com. We encourage you to reach out to us if you have suggestions for future episodes, comments on the podcast, or questions that you'd like us to answer on air. We look forward to speaking to you on another episode.